Welcome to Window Seat. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Omari. I'm here with Chris. What's up? And of course, we always have Jack in the booth. Yeah. We are broadcasting on Full Service Radio, live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. We were provided this opportunity by the Adams Morgan Youth Leadership Academy, also known as Amila. And today we have a very special guest. She's the Executive Director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, (laughs) Ms. Betty Aldworth. Hey, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you for coming. Just trying to back up your claps there, you know. Thank you. I was thinking that, like, Jack does the claps. I think that's the first time I've ever had a clap track behind me. Special guests get the clap track. All right. So what is, um, or can you tell us about Students for Sensible Drug Policy? Yes. Yeah, so SSDP was founded in 1998 by a group of college students who were communicating over some pretty early uh, communication forms on the Internet who were all sort of in agreement about the idea that the drug war was a mess, right? And in various different ways. The very first campaign that we ran was around the Higher Education Act. The Higher Education Act has a provision in it that says that uh, young people who have been convicted of drug crimes at the time couldn't receive any financial aid. Hmm. And so, Hmm. you know, that does exactly the thing that the drug war does broadly, which is take away people's opportunity for building a future where uh, they have more appealing options available to them than engaging in, um, than being, uh, doing drug-related activities. So, you know, what we see all over the place, all the time, is that when people are using drugs, the thing that is most helpful to them is to have hope for the future, uh, or using drugs chaotically, I should say, um, uh, where they are in a dependent relationship. Um, they, the thing that can help them with that is having hope for the future, having a structure around them that is supportive, having friends that they're connected to, having a social network, and all of these social structures that help them um, have something more interesting to do than drugs, mm-hmm. right? And so, so much of the drug war, in fact, takes away all of those opportunities and instead, you know, catches people in a morass of um, trying to, you know, reach a, uh, trying to, um, you know, fix the the problem. I'm using air quotes that the audience can't see. (laughs) Fix the problem by, um, you know, engaging in a bunch of, um, being trapped in a bunch of of, um, messes that don't actually help them fix their lives. So... Is the that, Higher Education Act is one example of that. Mm-hmm. Students need to have a future available to them. They need to not be pulled out of school. They need to be able to continue their education in order to, um, you know, if they are using drugs chaotically, in order to uh, have a better uh, future, a stronger future. What is, what is chaotically? Sure. Yeah. So, so we differentiate, when we're talking about drug use, we differentiate between types of drug use. Um, drug use is just drug use. Lots of people use drugs in their day-to-day lives mm-hmm. perfectly normatively, right? Right. Um, I've used 
uh, at least one drug today, I've used caffeine and a lot of it, right? <laughs> but like, let's not fool ourselves. That's a drug. Um, many people will go home tonight and they'll use alcohol. In fact, from this seat, we can see people using alcohol perfectly normally right. in the lobby of this building. The Lion Hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are seeing, you know, we, we are familiar with people using drugs in, uh, you know, relatively healthy ways. Right. All the time. So we can't call all drug use misuse. Misuse is when people are in a chaotic relationship with a drug. It's when they're dependent on a drug or addicted to a drug, which are two different things, and are not able to stay in charge of that relationship. So what we really need to think about is not the drug itself, not the, uh, the fact that people are using it, but what, how is the relationship between the drug and the person constituted? And that's a lot of um, you know, the public health and treatment side of what happens. But mm. on, the, on the criminal justice side, um, you know, what we're seeing is that the drug war is really very broadly criminalizing a whole bunch of people for activities which they engage in privately that end up you know, seriously uh, causing serious detriment to their lives for no purpose. And we're wasting enormous amounts of money, not just in incarcerating people, but also in, you know, separating them from their economic potential. And in so doing, we are further marginalizing black and brown communities across America and the world because enforcement happens disproportionately in those communities. So I know that I've laid out a whole bunch of different things here, but let's go back to the Higher Education Act for just a second, because education is super important, right? So very briefly, 20 years ago we were founded to address the the Higher Education Act and make sure that students, even those convicted of drug crimes, were able to continue their education. Mm -hmm. In the last 20 years, Students for Sensible Drug Policy has grown from an organization with, on six campuses with a couple dozen members, Um, in the northeastern U.S. and D.C. to an organization of uh, 8,000 active members last year on 300 campuses in 33 countries. We are fighting the drug war from Berkeley, California to Manila in the Philippines where people are being (laughs) murdered in extrajudicial killings for their drug use and, uh, and everywhere in between. So we're providing students with support in all of those different places. So what would you say are sensible drug policies? Yeah, thanks. Great question. Sensible drug policies are those which um, address the human being first, right? So when it comes to addressing um, drug use in a community, we need to recognize that even people who use drugs are people, who are entitled to human rights, Mm -hmm. who are entitled to fair treatment under the law, who are entitled to be treated as human beings. Okay, so for the the, um, playing devil's advocate, right? So Mm -hmm. when you say drugs, some people would say, well, what about the person that's using drugs that's going to rob my house or beat up someone to take their money? Like, you know, the negative effects of a person using uh, drugs. Right, so... so So we need to think about drugs as a tool, right? Because that's fundamentally what they are. We think about caffeine and alcohol as, well, we think about caffeine as a tool. Mm -hmm. Um, Many of us think about alcohol as a tool. We use it to have fun, to go out dancing, to as a social lubricant, the rest of it. Drugs are fundamentally a tool that people use and that are, in many ways, 
sort of unrelated from those other behaviors, right? Now, when a person becomes addicted to drugs um, or dependent on, on drugs, they might engage in such behaviors. But if we look at other examples, so like writ large, the most sensible drug policy is to decriminalize all drugs and then regulate them according to their harms. Portugal has gone halfway there. Portugal has decriminalized all drugs, writ large. So if you have a personal use amount of drugs on your person and you come in contact with the police, you are going to go have a conversation with a social worker, um, a a treatment professional, and a third person on a committee Mm -hmm. that will decide what you need in order to help you and probably offer you treatment through the um, universal healthcare system available there. And so when people are not trapped in the criminal justice system, when they are not trapped in the chaos of an illicit drug of a of a criminal drug market then what we're seeing are extremely positive outcomes people are less likely we we've seen in portugal a decrease of those sorts of property crimes, a decrease in drug use overall, believe mm. it or not. I see the look you're giving me. <laughs> yeah, I know you don't believe it. Most people don't, mm. but we do see a broad decrease of crime. No, what I, what I thought about when you said that was uh, when you mentioned universal uh, health care, yeah. that's a, something that we don't have in this country. Right. And what we do have are prison systems. Right. And so it seems like we're using the tools that we have to address the problem. That's precisely. Instead of having to create uh, you know, another avenue to address the problem. The biggest healthcare system in the U.S., especially the biggest mental healthcare system in the U.S., is in our prisons, mm-hmm. because what we're doing is imprisoning Ooh. people who have mental health problems. Oh, that's scary to think about. Yeah, I, mean, I just never heard it put that way. When you said that way, uh, I just didn't like the way that sounds. It's true. It's absolutely uh, true. It's mind blowing. It's more yeah. than true. It's mind blowing. And, you know, people will say, oh, well, send someone to prison if they're engaging in drug use, they're going to get the health care that they need or they're going to you know, be separated from the drug crimes. No, let's not fool ourselves. There are very well established and vibrant drug markets in every prison and jail in the United States. Mm-hmm. That is simply true. And we can't fool ourselves to think that there's not. So instead of forcing people into incarceration, taking them away from their families, ruining their lives, you know, setting them back and, and, you know, disallowing them from engaging in behaviors that help build them up. We're wasting money and resources and human potential and dignity on imprisoning people when we could take that money and instead put it into treatment for those people who really need it. Can I ask you, um, if I was better educated on all of this Mm -hmm. and I just looked at it closely, what would I would draw as the reason for our system to be set up as it is? Like, why? Is it, the answer seems to be money, but what would you say? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of, a lot of answers to that. Mm-hmm. Um, racism is, is, of course, the biggest one, right? And, like, <laughs> I mean, if we, if we look at systems in mm-hmm. uh, the modern world where we are oppressing and marginalizing people, that's pretty much underlying, you know, we... It, if we subscribe to critical race theory, we understand that that is underlying essentially every injustice and, and marginalization in the U.S. And even if we don't subscribe to critical race theory and don't understand things from that perspective, mm-hmm. we can look very clearly at the way that policing happens in communities, the way that the drug war impacts communities of color very much disproportionately 
um, that to the ways that it does white communities. Um, the ways that uh, the first drugs were made illegal. So if you look back to um, you know the opium wars, if you look back to um, you know the ways that that opium was made illegal in the U.S. in uh, you know more than 100 years ago, this was in order to uh, marginalize Asian communities mm -hmm. to control. Um, you know, Asian communities on the west coast of the U.S. If you look at marijuana prohibition, that was a way to marginalize um, particularly Latinx and black communities. And the ways that those have been, uh, the, me the messaging, the rhetoric, the structure of all of these policies that make up the war on drugs mm -hmm. in the U.S. and the way that we propagate it throughout the world, those are all built around marginalizing black and brown people so so take for example early messaging around marijuana mm -hmm. you know why are we so afraid of marijuana because black men are going to you know black jazz musicians are going to smoke marijuana and if they don't you know convince the the innocent white women to go smoke marijuana with them and then you know uh ruin their purity then they're going to smoke marijuana and rape them wow. we know that these things aren't true mm -hmm. right but that was the rhetoric that was used to make people afraid of marijuana that's the the rhetoric that was used you know not just for black jazz musicians but also for mexican men and latino men all over the, you know, and, and so the early rhetoric, the early justifications for prohibition of various drugs were very much built around the idea of protecting the purity of white communities. And today we know that there are many places in the United States where black and brown people are eight times more likely to be punished for their drug use, even though people of all ethnicities use drugs at essentially the same rates. Mm -hmm. Eight times more likely. We know that our prisons are full, full of black and brown men who have been incarcerated and put into the criminal justice system, and women too, um, who are that women are in fact the fastest growing population in the justice system right now. So, you know, we know for sure that when it comes to who ends up in prison, it does not by any means reflect who's using drugs. It just me reflects how they use drugs, what activities around drug use have been criminalized, and the ways that, it, that we are policing it. Right. Okay. So um, today it seems like the, the attitude towards the drug war is changing with the rise in the opioid um, crisis. And it seems that way because um, it, seem, it appears that mostly white people are using and dying from yeah. opioids. Would you agree that, that it's changing because of the color of the person that's using that particular drug, the race of the person using that particular drug? I mean, I think that that's a big part of it. And I think that we're sitting in a city where that's perfectly represented. Right. D.C. has one of the highest per capita rates of overdose in the U.S. But most people don't know that. That's because the second most time my mind's been blown today. I, I had no clue. <laughs> yeah. I would think Baltimore, I would thought it was Virginia. Chicago. Baltimore mm -hmm. has an incredibly high overdose rate. There are many, many places in West Virginia has a very high overdose rate. So does D.C. And we don't hear about that because most of those deaths are happening on the east side of the river. Mm. Most of those deaths are in southeast. Most of those deaths are among the people that don't get the attention, that don't get on the cover of time. And so I think that there are two reasons for it. Yes, absolutely. It is the case that the 
complexion of the overdose crisis has changed. But it is also the case, and, and that is drawing more attention to it. And, you know, it's unfortunate, but if it means that we can, um, you know, if, if it means that we can implement policies that are going to protect everyone, then we must take this opportunity to do so while also looking critically at how, you know, how this is, how this, um, while making sure that the same racism that is imbued in the intention doesn't end up imbued in the policies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also the case that we are seeing many, 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 many more overdose deaths now than ever before. And we are seeing opioid analogs like fentanyl and all of the different types of fentanyl right. show up in almost every kind of drug in the illicit market. So we've gone from a situation where accidental overdose was you know, among the top 10 causes of uh, leading causes of death to the leading cause of, of injury-related death in the United States. Wow. We've lost more people to overdose in 2016 than to the entirety of the Vietnam War or the AIDS epidemic. Wow. It's the third time you might have been blowing this in there. I'm sorry. So, so yeah, yeah, absolutely. We are being more compassionate. We're responding in different ways because it's white kids who are dying and white moms and dads who are dying and, you know, folks who are, who, you know, in society generate more widespread empathy. And we are in a very serious crisis that must be dealt with. We've been in a crisis, right? Yes, of course, so of course. I guess the question is why now is the crisis um, more important, I guess, than it was in the past? And well, it, it, it's, a, it's a sheer uh, numbers question, right? So the, the crisis has been growing, but over the course of the past four or five years, um, there have been, there's been a tremendous uptick in the, um, in the numbers of overdose deaths and in the ways that uh, folks in the illicit market are... Um, using fentanyl, um, and uh, you know, we're finding it in many, many, many different types of drugs. Right. And so, you know, many people who are, um, you know, we're thinking about about it not as an opioid crisis, but as an accidental overdose crisis right now. Because when someone is using cocaine that is laced with fentanyl, when someone is using you know, PCP or LSD that has fentanyl in it, mm-hmm. um, you know, that is an accidental overdose. So are most. Uh, overdose deaths but that is you know we need to really think critically about how we fix this problem not just for people who are intentionally using opioids but for everyone if you're just joining us you're listening to window seat uh we're talking with betty aldworth about the drug crisis or ssdp um specifically and um i know going on in the news as of late uh mr francis might laugh uh wait did you watch the wire Oh, of course. Okay, you have so, to watch The Wire. <laughs> so, so there was a, um, I, I don't know if it was season two or season three, where uh, was it the police chief right. was set up, like kind of set up a zone. Um, Amsterdam. Yeah, Amsterdam. And it seems that uh, Philadelphia, I think Philadelphia, um, Boston are like looking into that as a good way to deal with the crisis because you can have doctors on site. Um, they're looking at the same way as we're talking. Most people are dying in these cities from drug overdose. And it seems to me, what I gather from it, that they're having a problem with the federal um, government because their stance is completely different. Yep. First, I'm just curious, what do you think about that as an action? Um, and are y'all doing anything to affect that policy? 
Yeah, so um, sort of writ large, mm-hmm. uh, um, we must provide services to people who use drugs in the places that they use them. So one really good example of that is a safe consumption facility, or it's also known as a safe injection facility, a supervised injection facility, or an overdose prevention facility. But no matter what you call it, it is the same thing. And it is a place where people can go and use drugs that they have purchased on the street. Um, And whether they're injecting or smoking or whatever it might be, they can go and do so safely where there are health interventions available. There are safe consumption facilities in cities across the world that have overseen millions of injections, and no one has ever died of an overdose in one of these facilities. No one has ever died of an overdose. That's crazy. In a safe consumption facility. Because... People are there to respond. There are people who are trained in medical responses. They're able to take care of it. If somebody overdoses, which happens all the time, right? Those overdoses don't become fatal because the overdose antidote naloxone is available. Mm -hmm. And there are medical professionals there who are able to treat it immediately. And so we're seeing in places like Vancouver, um, not only buildings in which... Um, there are permanent structures for these facilities, but also pop-up facilities where people are able to, um, you know, inject in a, in a sterile um, tent, okay. essentially, and have the same kind of services available. And those are an incredible answer for those people who are intentionally injecting opioids and other drugs. Um, and they're able to test their drugs, to check their drugs, and make sure that if the drugs are adulterated, they know what they are adulterated with. It's a whole other story that I'd love to get into when we're talking about nightlife drugs and things like that. But um, safe consumption facilities are a frontline approach that can really help um, address the overdose crisis. And there are many cities that are looking into them. You mentioned a couple. Uh, Philadelphia, Chicago, Boston, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, Seattle, Los Angeles, and the list go Denver. The list goes on and on and on. However, the federal government, the Department of Justice, has said that they will not allow these facilities to open in the U.S. Um, and they will prosecute people who are involved in it under the the tightest, um, or the the harshest laws that they can possibly, the harshest um, charges that they can possibly apply. And all we're trying to do here is save some fucking lives. You know? Thank you. That's it. We are trying to save some <laughs> lives. And the Department of Justice is standing there saying, nope, it's much more important that we're able to put more people in prison. And that is an incredibly disturbing, um, uh, d- incredibly disturbing response. We also see some really incredible responses in other cities where DAs are refusing to prosecute where, uh, you know, um, certain types of drug crimes where they're de facto making drugs decriminalized for personal use because they are refusing to prosecute. We're seeing, you know, places where folks are, you know, essentially having, um, you know, relatively unpoliced zones where people, social workers and public health workers and doctors and nurses are able to go in and provide the services that are needed. And one of those services is, of course, treatment. What we see is that people have a much easier introduction to treatment and much better treatment outcomes when they are making the choice for themselves in a moment and can receive treatment immediately. 
So they are, you know, the, the social workers and the public health workers who are available in those spaces are able to connect folks to treatment instantaneously and get people into a, a program that can help them. So it's not just about giving people a place to, you know, have a chance for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's also about giving that, getting them to a place where they're receiving a full breadth of supportive services that are giving them a chance for a tomorrow where maybe they choose not to use drugs chaotically anymore. So what do you say to the people who are afraid of those that are using drugs? So they've been influenced by um, uh, the propaganda presented by the government yeah. and the media that you're, it, you're in danger, your family, your community is in danger by those who use drugs. Uh, what do you say to those people? Because for them, they're operating from a place of fear. They don't want these facilities in their house, in their uh, communities where people can go and use drugs free, freely. They don't want... They're afraid that their kids may be introduced to drugs, even though their kids probably already are using drugs. (laughs) Listen, people are kidding themselves if they think their kids don't know about drugs. Their kids know a lot more about drugs than they do. Right. So how do how do you uh, reach those people and get them on board? Because those are the people that are supporting the the approach. Yeah, that's been a really tough thing. There's a whole lot of yes, we should have safe injection facilities, but no, not around the corner from my house, my house, my business, my apartment, whatever it might be. Yeah, but they're doing that. Same thing when it comes to, you know, whatever Muslims like. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all over the place. kind of. Yeah. I mean, this is a really big question about how we break down stigma and change people's minds by showing them the evidence. Right. Which is a hard thing to do. People aren't swayed by evidence, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um, It's emotion. Yeah. Yeah. And and folks have been have had, you know, the D.A.R.E. program teaching them for generations that people who use drugs are dangerous people Mm -hmm. and what we have to do again is separate the idea that drugs are anything but a tool a tool that people are using sometimes when they want to have fun sometimes when they want to be productive at work sometimes when they want to um you know escape from a pretty bleak world that is in front of them and so by building up this supportive space around them we can intervene before the social problems start to exist, mm-hmm. right? We can address social problems that are... So we, we should think of the social problems as collateral consequences, right? Mm-hmm. Of other already existing problems in society. Right. And listen... People shouldn't fool themselves to think that just because there's no safe injection facility that there aren't people shooting up, that there aren't people using drugs in their neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. What we know from the opioid crisis, because it has given us the very bleak evidence of bodies in the suburbs, bodies in affluent neighborhoods, bodies of celebrities, bodies of people who are well-respected in their communities, we have this bleak evidence in front of us, and what we know is that everyone, everyone might find themselves in a position where their chaotic drug use could end up um, impacting their families or everyone could perhaps be impacted by this opioid crisis, this overdose crisis. And, you know, what we find is that when we're able to intervene with the right kinds of things like a a syringe exchange where people can trade in their, their dirty needles for clean ones. Mm -hmm. When there's a, when there are, when there's an naloxone available widely, when there are 
uh, overdose uh, prevention centers available, then we can actually create safer communities. And the evidence shows us that incredibly clearly. All right, well, you're listening to Window Seat. We're up on a uh, short break. We're talking about students for sensible drug policy with Miss Betty Aldworth. Oh, we're back. Oh, um, no, we're back with Miss uh, Betty Altworth from uh, Students of Sensible Drug Policy. We're talking about uh, drug policies and how it affects our communities, how it affects uh, the world. And when we left, you were talking about the opioid crisis and how uh, the approach should be uh, support and social engagement to address the problems that are um, the underlying problems that are leading these people to using drugs, mm -hmm. opioids. And I know for me in conversations I've had with my friends and just personal experience and things that I've been thinking about watching the uh, response in America to the opioid crisis is this is bullshit. Like, where was all of this concern when people were overdosing from crack? Right. Or where was all of this concern when you saw um, when you they were uh, parading black families across the, the news screen every night talking about all the dangers and um all the negative effects of crack cocaine and how it can affect your community and as opposed to this social approach to supporting people who are using crack or suffering from the effects of, of drug use, right? Like, I don't even think they talked about any other drug. It was just crack and right. everything that could happen to you if you were ever to meet someone who used crack and it was always a black person. 
So why, what, like, to me, it bothers me that, you know, when they talk about the opioid crisis, they don't show any black people. And the large, uh, the community at large usually talks about support. Even when you watch people that go before, uh, you know, judiciary committees, they talk about um, their family member, their child who died and how uh, the approach in America to supporting drugs is wrong. But that wasn't the opinion 20 years ago, 30 years ago. That's a, I I don't know. It's a problem. Yeah. It's a problem. And, and I, you know, I, I, there's a lot of people in jail. Yeah. There's a lot of separated families. Yeah. There's a lot of, you know, residual effects that are happening today as a result. Generational trauma. Absolutely. The, the ways that, that wealth works in black and brown communities where, you know, generational wealth is not passed on. Um, like it is in white communities, but general racial trauma sure as shit is. Absolutely. Right? And we're seeing that, like, the drug war, you know, and there are many of us who argue that the drug war is, at the moment, the primary tool used to continue the marginalization of black and brown communities. There, Michelle Alexander makes yeah. the argument. She made the seminal argument in her book, The New Jim Crow. Yeah. She laid it out in ways that are... I think very clear and, and readily uh, understandable, um, and the the uh, the ways that the drug war is fought even today, the ways that the marijuana industry is shaping up to benefit mostly, you know, already wealthy white people. Right. Like, yeah. yeah you mean, hear right. You you hear people all at, well not people but I, I on the news or or in the newspaper they'll talk about. Um, uh, cities being sued because they're not allowing people of color to get whatever uh, approval they need to build the dispensaries. Yeah. I, I don't know, but I remember when it first was legalized here, I think the entry fee was like a million dollars net worth, not just paying off, but you, you just, the standard was just so high that right. only rich people could participate. Yeah. Well, we're seeing a lot of amazing SSDP alumni members doing great work around this all over the country. In, in California, in Massachusetts, where one of the commissioners, Shalene Title, has really been leading on this. She wrote the, um, the equity language in the Massachusetts bill, and there's, in, there's a, a wonderful program there that really is very actively helping drive, um, you know, people from marginalized communities, people from communities disproportionately affected by the drug war into the cannabis industry and providing them opportunities where it wouldn't have existed either otherwise. We're really seeing a strong shift around that, which I'm, you know, uh, very happy to see. And I'm very glad to see that it's SSDPers who are out there doing it. Um, but, but like, let's not fool ourselves. We are operating within a racist set of social structures that are ultimately, you know, replicated in both the ways that the criminal justice system and and public health approach the war on drugs and in the ways that, you know, now legal marijuana is being made available. The monetary benefits of now legal marijuana are being made available to people who already have wealth, who are already, you know, part of those systems. And so, like, we have to take a really intentional look at repairing those harms, repairing the harms of the war on drugs proactively and making sure that when we are, you know, as I said a few minutes ago, that we aren't just replicating again in our approaches the same 
uh, you know, policies and practices that have resulted in the decimation of these communities because people are able to use the war on drugs in order to specifically and explicitly harm them. Right. So, yeah, I don't. I, I wish that I had a better answer for you. And it sucks I mean, I that we do. weren't taking a you know like a, a, a compassion based approach mm-hmm. twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. But like we are now in many ways, and let's make sure that we keep the conversation centered around what the real problem is. And and like yeah, it's it is on us. It's on those of us who are working to change the policy to make sure that we're not forgetting about the people who were left behind so long ago. So before you got here, I didn't understand the importance of this. When you start telling me everyone's dying, and mm-hmm. I know how it affects families, um, I I've seen mothers that want to support a son who's on drugs, and fathers who want to let them like face the cold streets and just you know yeah. the, the gripes within the household what can we do to join the fight that S- sdp has taken up yeah so i'm, I'm going to first address this question of in your family right and mm-hmm. i think that you know if you are a person who is um you know who has a family member who seems to be in a chaotic relationship or is potentially going to become in a chaotic relationship with drugs I would really suggest reading, if you can, a book called The Unbroken Brain, which breaks down addiction and dependence in some in easy-to-understand ways and helps people really get what it's about. And if you can't read The Unbroken Brain, then just take this one thing from the conversation. Hitting rock bottom is bullshit. Hmm. Hitting rock bottom is not what a person who is in chaos needs in order to... Um, you know, to overcome whatever chaotic relationship they're in with drugs. What they need is support. What they need is qualified treatment. What they need is to know that there is a, a better future out there for them. And if they are left alone, they are not going to find that, or it's going to be harder for them to find. So if that's if there's someone in your family, just dispose of everything that Dare told you about an addict. You know, again, I'm using air quotes, and you know, mm-hmm. because we don't, we try to avoid using that term. It's a person who uses drugs, or a person with substance use disorder. Um, you know, because they are first and foremost people. Mm-hmm. It's still your kid. It's still your parent. It's still your aunt or uncle. But don't they have to be willing to to want yep. to overcome these problems? So, how do you help someone who hasn't shown the willingness to? So I'm going to be real. I'm not a treatment professional. Okay. Um, And while I have overcome my own chaotic relationship with drug use many, many years ago, Uh um, this is not my area of expertise. And so I don't want to put anything out there that's not going to be helpful. But what I do know is that the idea of hitting rock bottom just doesn't work. Yeah, therapists that will tell you to let your loved one hit rock bottom. So then who do you go to that will advise you in a way that you believe is is the best approach? Yeah, so I recommend that people look for a harm reduction-centered therapy, uh, harm reduction-centered treatment. So what we're really talking about is reducing the harm of drugs um, uh, or of... So, so I'm going to uh, illustrate this with seatbelts, right? Um, driving is inherently dangerous activity. We make it more, we make it less dangerous. We reduce the harm by providing people with seatbelts. Injecting heroin is an inherently dangerous activity if we are not providing people with clean needles and uh, a, a known purity and potency uh, of the drug and the ability to uh, reverse an overdose with naloxone, right? So we are reducing the harm by providing people with the equivalent of a seatbelt or a bike helmet. So 
the same thing happens in therapy. And if you're finding a therapy, a therapist or a treatment center that is uh, focused on harm reduction and probably not abstinence focused. Abstinence works for a lot of people, but it doesn't work for everybody. And, you know, but does insurance because the money. Oh, it's a whole mess. It's a whole mess. And, yeah. and there are inadequate resources. We know that because we're spending so much on incarcerating people and not putting it into treatment. I, listen, the resources are a real problem. No, because I, I know that uh, a lot of times insurance, don't, they don't even give you the duration recommended by the facility that you're at. So they might cover you for four months and the facility saying, look, we need you a year. Yeah. So that in itself is a problem. Yeah. Um, thinking uh, what you just said about um, support, I know uh, somewhere along, you know, there's drug use in my family. Um, we got in com- uh, contact with some guy and he basically said that uh, it's easier to continue using drugs if you have that rock bottom mentality because you kind of reaffirm uh, bad thoughts or, you know, when you put them in that place. So. It's easier for someone who's strung out on drugs to say, oh, no one cares about me when he looks around and no one cares about it. But when you actually look up and your family's still supporting you, it's kind of that reason is no longer there. One last thing. You, you had another part. <laughs> yeah. You had another part um, to what we could do. Yeah. So, um, you know, I would certainly encourage people to check out Students for Sensible Drug Policy, particularly young people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we do all of this work from the perspective that the war on drugs has been waged in the name of young people and has actually hurt them. Uh, more than it's helped, right? We lie to kids about drugs all the time, and that creates danger in and of itself. Drugs today are stronger, more readily available, cheaper, and easier to find than ever before in history after 40 years of this incredibly destructive war on drugs that has taken countless lives. So we're taking the approach that, you know, that we must end the war on drugs and replace it with more sensible policies, similar to the ones that I've been talking to, talking about, but we do so from a youth-oriented perspective. You know, we've got, we are run by young people. I'm not a young person myself anymore. Yes, you are. (laughs) Thanks. Um, But, but like, you know, as the executive director of SSTP and as an advocate and activist, um, I've always been strongly uh, in favor of letting young people lead because I think that they have the best ideas. And so at SSTP, we do the same thing, right? We let young people lead. We give people all of the resources they need to change their communities, again, from Berkeley to Manila. Um, and we will provide them with coaching and, and uh, you know, tickets to our conferences and all sorts of uh, really, you know, valuable resources through our program. And you don't necessarily have to be enrolled in a uh, university to join us. You can be in a high school. You can be uh, what we, you know, a lifelong learner, a student of life uh, who's interested in changing drug laws and, and gets it that young people are going to have the best answers to this. And so SSDP is available um, to anyone and our resources are available to anyone. And folks can do things like make sure that Um, their community has a Good Samaritan policy so that if someone is experiencing an overdose from an opioid from or any other drug including alcohol um, that uh, folks can call for help uh, when it's needed um, to legalizing marijuana for medical or adult use to uh, you know addressing the global harms of the war on drugs like eradication programs that are so dangerous for people in uh, the developing world to working on the overdose crisis in their own communities. And so we provide a whole bunch of platforms for people to do that. 
um, and all from the perspective that young people are going to lead our organization and lead the efforts in their communities to get these things done. So I would definitely encourage people to check out ssdp.org to learn more and get involved in the work that we're doing. And then let's talk about DC for a second because yes, I know I that a lot of yeah you. a lot of the listeners are going to be here in DC. Um, you know, as with so many issues in DC, we are unfortunately uh, bent by the whims of the federal government and the Harris Rider um, around uh, you know implementation of a lot of policies that the citizens of DC want, um, and so we are similarly uh, bound by those same problems um, in many of our approaches to the war on drugs. But in DC, we have an opportunity to make sure that, uh, in fact, right now, um, we have an opportunity to uh, make sure that folks have access to naloxone. So. We have uh, a bill that's uh, currently in the health committee at the D.C. City Council that would allow standing orders for naloxone, which means that anyone could walk into a pharmacy and receive the opioid overdose antidote, naloxone, to keep in their homes. And listen, even if you feel like you don't have a chaotic relationship with opioids, if you are on a prescription opioid, you should have naloxone in your home. What's a prescription opioid? Can you name some? Yes. Yeah, yeah. morphine, um, uh, uh, fentanyl. Um, there, there are there are hundreds of them, but there are uh, Percocet, for example. Um, most painkillers are going to be an opioid of some sort. Many painkillers are going to be an opioid of some sort. So if you you know open up your medicine cabinet, look at what you've got, Google it to find out if you don't know if it's an opioid, and then you know you should be able to go to the pharmacy, go to your doctor, and say I should have naloxone in my home because I'm using an opioid. Anyone even if they're just using it as prescribed for their pain relief, could find themselves in a position where they might be uh, susceptible to overdose because accidental overdose happens all the time. So this bill that's in uh, that's at uh, city council right now is uh, going to allow for pharmacists to give out naloxone without a prescription. So they're called st- it's called standing orders. So folks should tweet at their uh, member of council, tweet at the health committee, uh, call the member their member of council, and uh, call the health department and encourage them to get this bill passed. It's a really important one. Um, we do find that, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there is uh, an incredibly high overdose rate uh, here in D.C., which is something that people are not familiar with because, it's again, east of the river. it's east of the river, right? And it's not the people who are getting the news. And we, I mean, listen, no one knows, no one knows that PCP, there's still a vibrant PCP market in Washington, D.C., right? Like, because, it, again, it's east of the river. Mm-hmm. And so people aren't, paying attention to what's happening in those communities. Get yourself educated on that. Get yourself educated on what's happening in D.C. And make sure that you are always carrying naloxone so that if you see someone who, you know, is unresponsive and, and you need training for it too, but it only t- you can get your training in five minutes on the Internet, how to identify an overdose and how to reverse it with naloxone when you have it. And if you see someone with... Um, you know, bluish lips or fingertips or ashen skin if they're a person of color um, and they are non-responsive, that's probably an opioid overdose and you can save a life very easily if you're carrying naloxone in your bag like I do every day. 
Um, but I would definitely encourage people to get engaged in, in what's happening here right in D.C. and, and make sure to, to call your member of council and let's get those standing orders from the lock zone available right away. And for those listening that aren't familiar with the term east of the river, that's usually Ward 7 and 8 in uh, Washington, D.C. They're uh, predominantly black communities and the poorer communities um, in D.C., the southern part of the city. Yes. Yes. So those are a couple of things that people can do, but like, you know, stay tuned in, stay tuned into what's going on. Make sure that in your own life, you're, I, you know, I, I think that this is so important for all of us to think about, you know, how are we propagating the stigma? How are we thinking about people who use drugs and are we recognizing their humanity? That's what it really comes down to in so many ways, right? We are so quick to judge other people. And if we just take a minute to slow down, recognize a person's humanity, and think about, okay, if I were in this position, if this was someone I loved, how would I want to have them approached? How would I want people to approach me? Because people who use drugs are fundamentally people. That's it. So what do you say to those who aren't uh, personally affected by drugs or the war on drugs? Who, why should they care? Well, because everybody is affected by the war on drugs, right? There's a lot of people that don't believe that they are, right? Sure, yeah. You live in a city or a suburb, you have to be affected somewhere. Well, ignorance is is bliss, right? So you may not know that you are, even though you are. That's all. I'm I'm just wondering, how do we influence those people? Right. So, like... We've got folks on, you know, we, we know that there are families and communities that are mired in the deleterious effects of the drug war, mm-hmm. who are over-policed, who aren't getting resources, who have had, you know, uh, you know, what, what is it, a third of black men are currently under control of the state mm-hmm. or will be in their lives, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, so we, we, there are places where it's really obvious. Right. There are places where it's less obvious, too. Because if we look at the medicinal benefits of certain drugs, then we can see that we are, um, you know, we're all affected in some pretty profound ways. The, the medicinal benefits of cannabis are overwhelming, yeah. and we don't know about them because it was made illegal for such a long time, right? I mean, this, this plant can probably help prevent Alzheimer's for crying out loud. You know, I mean, there are so many things that medicinal cannabis can do. Mm-hmm. Um, PTSD and trauma are tremendously helped by therapeutic uh, psychedelics. So you can go through a therapy session with a trained therapist in, uh, you know, soon. Um, we're working on, on making these things legal where you are taking MDMA, otherwise known as molly or ecstasy, yeah. or psilocybin, otherwise known as mushrooms, or LSD, otherwise known as acid, under the supervision of a therapist or ketamine even under the supervision of a therapist, and it can help combat PTSD, um, it can help combat depression, anxiety, OCD, all sorts of different types of um, mental illnesses that are so incredibly prevalent through our society. And if we look at the number of people who are taking antidepressants right now, oh my goodness, like the, the ways that we can provide support to people if you think you're not affected by the war on drugs, you're wrong. You know, I right. mean, hell, if you have wrinkles, <laughs> pot can help with that. So, like, <laughs> you know, like, everybody is going to be affected either by the criminal justice system, the incredible tentacles of the war on drugs, and the way that it weaves itself into all of our economic, social, racial justice systems. 
or by the fact that you don't have access to substances that could help with all sorts of things that affect everyone. Wow. Fuck. Yeah, man. <laughs> I just wasn't going to let you beat me in curse words. <laughs> that was not going to happen. Um, thank you for joining us as Window Seat. Uh, we really appreciate you being here. I learned a lot. Um, I wish you could be here. We have, I have so many more questions. I so would we're be have so to happy to come back. Please come back. Anytime. Yeah, especially after you get this bill oh, passed. You think, you know, right we're we're going to take you up on that. Um, and anything else? Part of me was wondering... Um, how do you help transform a student? Because we, we do work with Amila here. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and we're here to inspire the youth. And I was just kind of thinking, um, if I had a child mm-hmm. and they were interested in joining SSDP, mm-hmm. what would they go in like? What would they come out like? Kind of what do you see um, yeah. from that standpoint? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. Um, we are a leadership pipeline for the drug policy reform movement. And mm-hmm. the young people who go through our program are really learning how to make changes in their own communities, right? So we're providing them with all of the resources they need to go out and shape their communities in ways that they see as supportive, sensible, helpful, um, and positive. And, you know, we're building a more sensible future together. And so we're providing them with training on how to lobby, training on how to build a campaign plan, training on how to speak to the media, training on how to lead a group, training on grassroots organizing, all of these different things alongside the sort of more technical training Mm -hmm. for um, understanding drugs and, and the policies around them. So... You know, a person who comes into SSDP because maybe they've been arrested for a drug crime or their friend has, maybe they are like, you know, they, they like to use cannabis um, and, uh, and want to make it legal. Maybe they have lost a loved one to the overdose crisis. When they come into SSDP, they might not know how to change a law. They might not how to know how to organize their campus and their community. When they come out, they're going to know all of those things. Mm. They're going to understand how to do grassroots community organizing and how to get on TV or come to a podcast like this and talk to people about the issues that they care about in compelling ways. And we're going to provide them with lots of opportunities for scholarships, for um, you know, connections into the drug policy reform movement. And it's not just drug policy reform, right? We have alumni members of SSDP who are sheriffs, who are public health professionals, who are um, business people, who are working in other um, uh, intersectional or other otherwise related movements um, that are changing the world all over the place, not just in drug policy reform, but in everything that, that comes into contact with it. So learn life skills with SSDP. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm sold. And I was like, oh, I know. <laughs> I want to join. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, they, I, you guys might be familiar with the saying that uh, if your revolution doesn't have dancing, I don't want it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You guys dance we, too? We've got some dancing. <laughs> okay. we, have a, we have a lot of fun while we're changing the world and saving lives. That's great. All right, Miss Betty Allworth, thank you for uh, sharing your time with us. And that's our show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. 
Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at FullServiceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.